Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Well, good morning. My name is Paul and let me add my welcome to Westminster Chapel, particularly if you're joining us for the first time here today. If that is you, um, or if you've just forgotten what we've been doing for the last few months, we are in the book of Acts. We haven't got very far. We've um, uh, got to chapter two, but let me give you a brief resume of the story so far. So Acts, this is really the Gospel of Luke part two. And in Acts one, we saw that uh, Luke gives us a detailed account of Jesus' ascension into heaven. He records Jesus' final instructions to his disciples, that is to stay in Jerusalem until they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We saw how they spend the next 40 days in prayer and praising God in the temple. And we also saw how they attended to a bit of early church governance with the appointment of Matthias to replace Judas. And as one of the trustees here, I do like a bit of church governance. So that was very heartening. And then in Acts 2, we see the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus comes. And there's a violent wind, there's tongues of fire, speaking other languages. It's dramatic. And then Peter gets up to address the crowd. And he starts by quoting from the prophet Joel to explain what is going on. And today we're going to look at the next section of Peter's address to the crowd. So, you want to turn with me to that, it's in Acts 2. And we're going to uh, start at um, Acts 2.22. And going down to 28. So Acts 2.22. Fellow Israelites, says Peter, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence." Let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, we just pray for uh, your hands and uh, help to understand what you have for us this morning. And Holy Spirit, we want to welcome you here uh, to give us that understanding and help us as we um, look to you and, uh, and see what you have to say for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before looking at this section, I just want to make an initial observation 
of what we see here and what we saw in Acts 1. And that is Peter's incredible knowledge of the scriptures. Peter was a fisherman. You know, a little later in the account in Acts, in Acts 4, when Peter and John are brought before the religious leaders, um, the religious leaders were astonished because they recognized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, but yet had an amazing courage and amazing knowledge of the scriptures. And we saw this with Peter in Acts 1. He explains the actions of Judas by reference to uh, um, Psalm 69, the need to appoint someone in his place by reference to Psalm 109. He starts this message by quoting from Joel. He then turns in the section that we're looking at to Psalm 16. He then goes on to Psalm 24. This man is amazing in his ability to use the scriptures. Now, I don't think he did much preparation for this sermon. I don't think in the 40 days before the Ascension and Pentecost, Peter thought, you know what, I should have a sermon in my back pocket for when the Holy Spirit comes. I think he just stands up and starts delivering it. Wondered about trying that this morning. I do have some notes. Um, but no wonder that Peter might say in his first letter, 1 Peter 3, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone to who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Because Peter, I'm not sure how much preparation he had done, but boy, did he do an amazing job. And we see the powerful combination of the Holy Spirit and Peter's knowledge of the scriptures. Now, Jesus promised, you'll recall, that the Holy Spirit would remind them of the things that he told them. He said, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, as has happened in Acts 2, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. That's in John 14. And the Holy Spirit, I think, is doing here what Jesus did with the two on the road to Emmaus in the last chapter of Luke's Gospels. Gospel, remember, he said to them, you know, um, these are the words I, I was said, shared when I was with you. He takes them through um, Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, showing how you know, God's plan of salvation was being worked out through him. Then, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, we want to move of the Holy Spirit, do we not? Um, but the Holy Spirit does not remind us of things or give us understanding of things that we don't know. And there's no shortcut or easy answer to this one. And that's why I say preparation for a move of the Spirit is key. You know the famous quote of Abraham Lincoln, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four sharpening the axe. And think of Moses when um, Stephen, uh, later in Acts, in, in chapter 7, he will give the story of, of the Israelites. He talks about Moses educating all the wisdom of the Egyptians, powerful in speech and word. When he was 40 years old, he went out to his brothers in the children of Israel. Think of Paul. We often forget it, but he went away to study for three years before he started his ministry. And think of Jesus why did Jesus start his ministry at the age of 30, not 21 or 25? Well, I would say partly because he was learning and growing. It, it says in Luke, Jesus was a man who increased in wisdom and stature. Jesus had an amazing grasp on scripture, and that's because he spent time learning. And I would say this underlines the importance to us of Bible reading and study. 
And perhaps you started out 2024 with great intentions, a new Bible reading plan, Bible in a year, Bible in two years. You struggled your way through Exodus, and they've got to Leviticus. Come on. Um, it's hard work. Um, and similarly, perhaps you've had a t you're in a time of study, or you've had a time of study, and you're asking yourself, when's God going to use me? Well, all I would say is, don't worry, because he will, and the effort that you've put in and you're putting in will be worth it. All the time that we can spend reading and meditating on God's word is a win. So don't worry if you've missed a day, start the next day. Um, it may feel like a chore. It usually does with me, to be honest, but you're adding to a resource that the Holy Spirit will use. So that's an initial observation. Now back to the passage. So by way of introduction, this section really that we're looking at breaks down into three parts. The first is verse 22, the life and death of Jesus. The second in verse 23, the purpose of Jesus' death. And the third, the remaining part of the uh, section is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So we're going to look at each of these, these three parts and see what they might say to us today. So first, the life and death of Jesus. So verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, as you yourselves know. Peter has been on quite a journey, hasn't he? He was called by Jesus to leave his nets and follow him. He's listened as Jesus has preached and taught. He's witnessed miracles. He's present on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John, where they met Moses and Elijah. He's come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, and Jesus said to him, who do you say I am? Peter said, God's Messiah. And Jesus was God made man. And, and Peter knows this. And at the beginning of his second letter, he says, to those of the righteousness of God, our saviour, Jesus Christ. So he knows who Jesus was. He knows Jesus is God made man. And as Christians, I think, you know, we often focus on that. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, they're interceding for us at the right hand of God. And that is, of course, true and it's good to do. Um, I think it's also in part because we're aware that there are cults, many cults, who will have this veneer of Christianity but who are, which are not Christian. They don't believe that Jesus was God. I think of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. And of course, that is the test of whether um, you know, a group is Christian or not. You know, as, as it says in 1 John, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. So that's the test. And that's why I think you know, we focus so much on Jesus as God. But here, Peter starts where he started. That is emphasizing that Jesus was a man. And you see in the passage we're looking at, he does this um, a few times. He says in verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth was a man. He starts verse 23, this man. And he refers to Jesus of Nazareth. That is, this is where the man came from. He was living in Nazareth. He didn't just appear from nowhere. And he sort of emphasizes the, if you like, the humanity of Jesus. And I think it's important for us to remember that Jesus was a man that walked this earth. 
because he knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be hungry. Are you here today and you've got accommodation problems? Well, Jesus knew all about that. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Um, Heather was talking about you know, the problems that we have within our community here, and Jesus knows all about them. He knows what it's like to face temptation, trials. You now we read in um, Hebrews, don't we, that um, uh, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in all ways, just as we are, yet was without sin. So in short, there is not a problem or a difficulty or a trial that you face today that Jesus doesn't know, doesn't understand, and doesn't care about. And I think that no one can look for long on the life of Jesus as a man without it having an impact on them. I think of the beauty and the wisdom of his words. There's a number of places one can look for this, but I love the, the uh, reference in John 7 when the religious leaders send the soldiers to go and arrest Jesus and they come back without him. They're asked, why didn't you bring him in? And the soldiers said, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. Think of the woman caught in adultery and Jesus' wisdom with the crowd that who were about to stone her to death. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then when he's left alone with the woman, saying to her, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replies. Then neither do I condemn you, says Jesus. Go and leave, leave your life of sin. I think of his answers to Pilate. When he so impressed Pilate that Pilate knew he was an innocent man, um, he wants to release him. Uh, but, uh, you know, felt under pressure not to do so. And uh, as Jesus comes out before them wearing the, the, the purple robe, the crown of thorns, Pilate says, I find no charge against him. He said, here is the man. What an impression he made on him. Now think of Jesus' love and his compassion. You know, for the leper who said, Lord, if you're willing... You can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. An unthinkable thing to do with a leper. For the blind man, Bartimaeus, who cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, and was told to be quiet. But Jesus had time for him. He said, what do you want me to do? And he said, Rabboni, let me see again. And Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. And for the crowd, it says in Matthew, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. For the little children, let little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And for Mary, um, the sister of Lazarus, when he sees her weeping, knowing though he did that he was going to raise Lazarus from the, the dead, he, wait, he weeps. And then, of course, on the cross, looking down on those who have put him there, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, of course, most people will accept Jesus as a historical figure, as a man, 
I'll see him perhaps just as a Jewish teacher and preacher. Obviously, Muslims revere him as a prophet. Um, but I would say, put any character of any other religion next to Jesus, and there is no contest. Um, a man, Nabil Qureshi, author of the book Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, said this, I left Islam because I studied Muhammad's life. I accepted the gospel because I studied Jesus' life. It's just a beautiful life that he led. So second, the purpose of Jesus' death. This is interesting. So in verse 23, it says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So here we see Peter getting into a bit of theology because he's talking about the sovereignty of God in relation to God's plan of salvation, that Jesus' death was God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God's sovereignty, what do we mean by that? Well, it's basically God's right and power to do whatever pleases him. Psalm 115 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. And as Job put it, he stands alone and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. Of course, as Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged when he was restored to his right mind, he said, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven for everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who, who walk in pride he's able to humble. So we can say, was what was done to Jesus right? Well, no. Peter refers to the people who did it as wicked men. They will have responsibility for their actions just as we have for ours. But God is in control. He has a plan of redemption. It was a plan referred to by John in the book of Revelation as being initiated from the foundation of the world. He was the lamb slain from the creation of the world. And it is the only plan. Peter would say before the religious leaders um, in Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Because say, so, well, if God is bringing about a plan of salvation, he's sovereign, he's doing it, why should we bother doing anything? Because God can do it without us. Well, yes, he can, and he will, but he wants to involve us in this plan and purposes. It says in Ephesians, for we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has planned in advance for us to do. I think sometimes we can agonize over finding some big purpose in life, but often it's just doing the next thing that is needed. Is there something that we need to change? Something that we need to do? Something that we need to give up? We'll start with that. As uh, Dr. Kendall, former minister of this chapel, often used to say, God doesn't take us from A to Z, but from A to B and B to C, etc. And I think of Peter himself, you know, when he was called by Jesus. We find him down on the, sh on the shore of, of, uh, by the Galilean lake. And Jesus just comes along and gets into um, Peter's boat um, just walking there gets into the boat and first of all he asks Peter he says um, put the boat out a little bit into the lake 
where Jesus can address the crowd. So it says that um, Peter did so, an act of obedience. Not difficult for Peter to do, but he did it. And then Jesus took him a step further. He said, put out into deep water. It was an instruction that made no sense to Peter. He'd just been fishing all night. He said, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. Nighttime is the time to fish. You can't catch anything in the day because the fish see you. So fishermen fished at night. And Jesus said, put out into deep water. Peter did it. And they had that, of course, miraculous catch of fish. And he kept following Jesus and doing what Jesus told him to do. And they, of course, you know, took him on a journey that Peter would never have imagined. So, as I say, it's a step at a time. What's the next thing that God is asking you to do? Do that and don't worry about the big purpose, if you like. And think of Jesus. You know, we have God's sovereign plan of salvation. It required Jesus to die on the cross. And yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, with Jesus sweating drops of blood at the prospect of dying on a cross and bearing the sin of the world, he still had to submit to the Father's will. And he said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So we have this you know, uh, plan of salvation on the one hand, but God's involvement with us on the other. What's the next thing that we should be doing? And then the third part of, of this uh, section is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And the reference to Psalm 16. Now, it's interesting, of course, because Peter did not have to emphasize to the crowd the miracles that Jesus had done because they knew it. They'd either seen it firsthand or they probably heard it from somebody. Um, as he says in verse 22, he was Jesus was a man accredited by God to you with miracles, wonders and signs. God did among you, as you yourselves know. So he didn't have to spend long on the miracles. But the resurrection was something different. And I think the resurrection would have been as astonishing a claim to them as it is to people today. And think of it because the risen Jesus was quite selective about who he appeared to. He didn't go back to Pilate. He didn't go to religious leaders. He didn't preach to crowds. He appeared to a select number of people. Some in the crowd, perhaps many, would have thought that Jesus' body had been stolen from the tomb. Because you remember that after Jesus died and was buried, the religious leaders remembered that Jesus had said that he would rise after three days. So they'd got Pilate to place a guard on the tomb. And then after Jesus had risen from the dead, um, they gave the soldiers money and told them to say that, um, that the uh, body had been stolen and that they would keep the soldiers out of trouble. And it says in Matthew, and this account has been circulated among the Jews to this very day. So many of them would have thought, oh, well, that's, that's what happened to Jesus. He was stolen. Of course, that makes no sense. Uh, I was talking to someone I know at the end of this year. He's not a Christian, but he is exploring the Christian faith. And he's been looking into this himself. And he said, very interesting, on his own sort of volition, he said, it would make no sense, um, that theory, because why, if you had helped steal the body from the tomb, would you go on following this 
you know, religion. Why would you go to your death for it, as almost all of them would do? It makes no sense. So there's plenty of evidence for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And there's books on it, like a Who Moved the Stone? So, but some of them would have thought that's what had happened. And the resurrection was something that you can see throughout Acts and beyond. is something that just causes um, offence. It's something that causes, you know, creates ridicule. Think of Paul in Athens when he's talking to the, the crowd there at the Aragopagus. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, it says. Paul, before Agrippa, he says, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? You know, the resurrection is just such an astonishing claim. Later, the theory would emerge that, um, that there was a resurrection, but it wasn't a physical resurrection. It was a spiritual resurrection. And Paul would have to address this um, theory, and he emphasizes the importance of the physical resurrection. Um, and, you know, if he says that um, if, if Jesus didn't rise physically, then we're not going to rise either. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is futile and useless, and so is your faith. So there was that theory that had to be addressed. So the resurrection has always come, a, come against sort of um, ridicule. It's come across against other theories. It's come across anything but accepting what actually, if you look at it as the chap I spoke to did, is doing, it makes, is, is the most plausible explanation. And Peter, of course, speaking to Jews, takes them to Psalm 16 because he shows them um, that, you know, this is all part of God's plan of salvation. Now, of course, the Jews in particular would be well aware of God's plan of salvation um, for the nation of Israel generally, as it were. Um, they were familiar with the exodus from Egypt. They were familiar from the, with the rescue from exile and Peter's trying to get them to see that Jesus' death is a continuation of God's work in this plan. So he takes them at Psalm 16, amongst other places. Now, the resurrection is Jesus' demonstration of his defeat and sin and death. No wonder why it faces so much opposition. In verse 24, it says, God freed him from the agony of death. Agony, pain or pangs. Um, it's the word that you'll get by reference in reference to childbearing and one of the commentators makes the point that death could no more hold jesus than the pregnant woman can stop the unborn baby being born when it's decided that a time has come to being born and of course jesus did not simply rise from the dead he is the resurrection of the dead as jesus said to martha i am the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live even though they may die. So I want to say now a few words about what this may mean for us today. As I mentioned above, I don't think anyone can look for long and reflect for long on the life of Jesus, and the claim of the resurrection, the depth of love that would motivate God to put in place a plan of redemption to start with, without it having an impact on them. Now, for the unbeliever, I would say it draws some people in. I think about the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, when she said, come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this man be the Messiah? It will turn some people away. You know, at the end of Peter's sermon, 
it says, those who accepted his message were baptized. Not everyone did accept his message. But it demands a choice be made. And you're probably thinking now of the famous C.S. Lewis quote in Mere Christianity. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. But what impact for the believer? Do you know, in our witnessing, and perhaps in our lives too, we can sometimes think of Jesus as just the solution for sin. And the message becomes, Jesus saves, or repent or perish. And now that's true, and he is that solution. But of course, Jesus is not just calling people to accept the gift of eternal life. He's calling people to follow him. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You know, the uh, friend I was referring to earlier who has realized that um, Jesus rising from the dead is actually probably the most plausible explanation of what's gone on. He's also realized this point, that there is a call that's made on people's lives, that accepting Jesus isn't just about a one-time transaction, as it were. It's about something that's going to have an impact on your life. And at the moment, at least, he's not ready to take that step. I pray that he does. But he's realized that as well. But, you know, the more we see Jesus, the more this is what I think we all want to do, and there's nothing com that compares with doing so. And as Peter put it in his response to Jesus when some disciples were turning back, and Jesus says, do you want to leave too? And Simon Peter replied, Lord, Lord to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Nabil Qureshi, I referred to earlier, says also, all suffering is worth it to follow Jesus. He is that amazing. So just a few closing observations. I would say it comes to this. God is in the business of reconciliation and restoration. Now, in addressing the crowd, Peter points out their responsibility in the death of Jesus. He says, you, with the help of wicked men, now, there may have been many in that crowd who were also in the crowd when uh, Jesus was with Pilate. And there may have been those who cried out, crucify him, calling for Pilate to release Barabbas rather than Jesus. But many in the crowd were not in that first crowd. They'd come from all parts of the Roman world for Pentecost. But just as Peter spoke to the whole crowd there, he speaks to all of us. Jesus died for our sins, and we're as guilty as they were. But in the same breath, Peter explains that Jesus' death was God's plan for the salvation of the world. Now, it echoes back to the end of Genesis when Joseph is there with his brothers. Remember Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, put into prison for something he didn't do wrong, um, then, through the providence of God and his gift of interpretation of dreams, made the, the prime minister of Egypt. And uh, his brothers then, before him, 
their father dead, and they think, right, now's the time that uh, Joseph is going to get even to us. But he, he reassures them, and he says, as for you, what you intended against me for evil, God intended for good in order to accomplish a day like this, to preserve the lives of many people. And so is Peter to the crowd. You were the help of wicked men, but don't worry. God was using it to achieve his purpose, a plan of salvation. As Paul would put it later on in um, 2 Corinthians, he said God was reconciling himself, reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he, he, he calls upon his, his hearers, his listeners, be reconciled with God. God made him who had no sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to invite the, the, the band back up now. And just say this, perhaps you're here, and as you hear about Jesus, you hear about his life, you hear about his words, well, perhaps you want to get to know more about him. Maybe you want to be reconciled with him. Well, the good news is you can. And if you want help with that, we'd love to talk with you. But also, I want to say that reconciliation and restoration doesn't stop with salvation. And, you know, perhaps you're here as a believer, but you feel you've let God down. And you're conscious of failures or past mistakes. Well, isn't that all of us? I remember this sermon is being delivered by Peter. This is the man who denied Jesus three times. He'd gone back to fishing. There's a, there's a place on the shore of Galilee, um, which by tradition is the place where Jesus met Peter again and asked him the three times, Peter, do you love me? And brought Peter back onto the, the plan that, as it were, God had for him. And uh, Claire and I visited it um, just last year. And um, it's clearly a big, big sort of spot to visit. And at, at first I thought it was quite odd. You know, in Israel, all the amazing sites of Old Testament and New Testament history. And yet this was a big site. And there's a church built and loads of people there. And then I thought, well, it's probably not so odd that it's such a big site because it's a place where we all find ourselves from time to time, where we need God's restoration and forgiveness and for God to get us back onto track. And you don't have to go to that spot on Galilee for that to happen. That can happen for you today. So I'm just going to pray briefly. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your willingness to come to this world as a man, I want to thank you for your perfect life, for your amazing words and deeds, for your willingness to go to the cross, to die there for our sins, and now for your constant love for us and intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, we just want to commit ourselves afresh today to following you, to serving you and to making our lives count when it comes to the plans for redemption that you have for this world. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.